Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I am Monish Rath here at the law firm Keller and Heckman in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by my colleague, Javane Nakumaram. Javane, welcome. Thank you, Monish, for having me. Well, Javane, as you know, we've got a great topic today. Uh, we've been uh, picking great topics for over seven different years. And all of those prior episodes are on our website, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. And this program, this particular episode, episode will be posted on our website in a day or so. And it will be up as a podcast uh, probably by the end of today. Typically, it happens pretty quickly. We've been able to get it uploaded pretty quickly. And so you should listen to this. Uh, those of you who are, are listening and uh, should listen to this as well uh, as a as a podcast or subscribe through your favorite podcast uh, media like uh, iTunes or Apple Podcast or uh, Spotify or SoundCloud. So with that said, let's go ahead and get into our topics. Uh, it's a great topic because it goes to the question of a parent company and a subsidiary and the question of uh, allocating responsibility under essentially a, an identity of the two employers uh, and use of the, the economic realities test for determining whether or not a parent is liable. Uh, with that said, uh, what we ought to do today is talk about a, an important uh, case development that came out uh, from an administrative law judge under the Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission, uh, a case called Secretary of Labor versus Freight Car America Incorporated. And we'll talk about that case, the facts in the case. Uh, we'll talk about the economic realities test that was used by the administrative law judge at the Review Commission and uh, discuss the Review uh, Commission's ALJ decision uh, relating to whether or not the parent organization was liable for OSHA-issued citations against the employer. And uh, there was another interesting case that came out in the exact same jurisdiction, uh, at the state court level that dealt with workers' comp. And that case is only a week old, I think. Right, from no, early November. Yeah, and, and it dealt with the workers' comp case applying the essentially the same question and coming to, uh, well, a somewhat different answer. And so in light of these two decisions coming out in close time proximity to each other, uh, we will finish up, as we always do, with a discussion of what employers should do the practical takeaway items that you can walk out of this program with. So with that said, Chavanay, why don't you walk us through the facts in the Freight Car America case? So in this case, we have two workers at a rail car manufacturing facility in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Uh, they're at a facility referred to as Freight Car Alabama. Uh, they were injured uh, while they were assembling a rail car. So to give some background on what they were doing, uh, the workers were part of a four-man crew and they had been assembling rail cars. And to assemble the rail car, uh, they have to essentially weld together four panels consisting of two sides and two ends. Uh, and so two cranes are used to lift the long sides of the panels into place. And then there's one overhead crane uh, that's used to lift and place the end panels in place. So as the panels are placed, the welders, they insert large pins at the top four corners to secure the panels together as they're doing their work. And so on the day of the incident, the crew was having some trouble aligning the last end panel. 
Uh, the crane had been unhooked from the end panel at that point, uh, and a welder removed the two pins from the top corners. So without the support of the crane or the pins, unfortunately, the heavy panel fell, injuring two workers. Um, and so OSHA subsequently received an employer referral notifying uh, the agency about the accident. So, uh, and so a compliance uh, safety and health officer inspected the facility uh, two different times. And then based on the inspection, the COSHO recommended that the secretary cite the parent company of Freight Car Alabama, which is Freight Car America, uh, as the corporate entity that, that the COSHO believed to be the owner and operator of the facility of the injured workers. So Freight Car America, uh, they were named in the citation. So Freight Car America contested the citation because they argued that not only uh, was there no violation of the general duty clause, which was the one item that uh, OSHA was alleging the company violated, uh, but also that OSHA cited the wrong employer. Uh, they argued that Freight Car Alabama should have been named in the citation and not them as the parent company. Well, I think that's an important question for every employer to evaluate at the first stages of a citation contest, starting with the inspection. And so, so I certainly think that Freight Car America was right to consider whether or not this was a bona fide uh, claim to be made, that the citation should have properly been issued against its uh, subsidiary corporation responsible for the mu its Muscle Shoals facility. Uh, on the other hand, the question that, that they're evaluating is largely dictated by the facts. And before committing to a position, I note that Free Car America had all of the facts at its disposal and could have, could have made its own internal assessment as rigorously as possible before committing to raising the issue uh, before the administrative law judge. So with that said... Uh, the administrative law judge considered what method it should apply to evaluate whether or not the parent organization should be the cited employer in this case, and it settled upon the economic realities test. And I can share with you that the economic realities test is essentially the test that is used in many, if not all, areas of workplace law to determine whether or not a parent and a subsidiary share the same identity for purposes of liability, whether two distinct employers are should be considered joint employers or co-employers. And in fact, I, the, in the Tenth Circuit, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals, one of the landmark decisions is one that I'd argued under the economic realities test. Uh, and I think that that, that goes to illustrate the, the well-established uh, nature of the test. That particular case was in the application of discrimination law. Then it's used in the context of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Here in OSHA law, there's... Oh, and the, the other area that you'd see this in is is the question of whether or not somebody's an independent contractor, which is really a threshold question to be answered in before getting to to subjects like liability or, or the Fair Labor Standards Act liability. So here, in the context of OSHA citations, the economic realities test is probably a reasonable test to apply when the administrative law judge uh, settled on that test. I think it was a reasonable position to take. And essentially, it goes to the control of uh, the workers. 
the questions asked in the economic realities test, according to this administrative law judge, included who the workers considered to be their employer. Who pays the workers' wages? Does the alleged employer have the power to control the workers? And I think that's probably, the, the, that one and the next one are probably the reality, the, uh, the, the fundamental of the economic realities test. The next one is, does the alleged employer have the power to hire, fire, or modify the condition of the workers? The distinction between that one and the one before it is, uh, the power to hire, fire, or modify the employment condition of the workers uh, is distinct from does the alleged employer have the power to control the workers. This refers to the day-to-day -day supervision, telling employees or workers how to perform work, in what order to perform the work, uh, monitoring, supervising, uh, disciplining, uh, performance management. Those go to the power to control the workers. To me, those seem like extremely telling, highly telling indicia of whether or not you have an identity between the concept of employer and the entity in question. And th that's the basics of the test, the economic realities test, that the ALJ decided to apply in, in this case, Freight Car America. So based on the the different factors to consider in the economic realities test and applying them to the facts of our case, the ALJ decided that Freight Car America was, in fact, the employer of the affected workers, even though it was the parent company and not the company located in Alabama. They were, in fact, the employer in this case. So, so first, the court discussed how uh, the workers at the Alabama facility considered Freight Car America to be their employer. And that's an important factor is, you know, when they uh, when they were talking to the environmental health and safety director, when they spoke to former employees, when they took witness statements, many employees considered Freight Car America to be uh, the, the corporate name of their employer. Um, even employees' business cards said Freight Car America um, and the, uh, <clears throat> there are signs outside of the facility indicating that it's Freight Car America. Uh, the name is prominently featured uh, on signs and also on documents within the facility. I should point out, Javanade, that up until now, all of the factors that you mentioned are ones that the LJ pointed to to support his conclusion. But to me, they really have nothing to do with or they're, they're just not very informative on the question of whether or not Freight Car America should be considered the employer. Uh, the business cards, the sign on the outside, I can see how that would fool a compliance, safety, and health officer into believing that that was the employer. But the question that the judge should be evaluating is, is this uh, entity the employer as a construction of law or the employer in fact? And they don't go to the economic realities test elements. The economic realities test elements that are the most telling are the power to control the worker and the the power to hire, fire, and and, and uh, otherwise affect the terms and conditions of work. Uh, the judge did consider those, but I just want to point mm -hmm. out that the factors you've just mentioned, I, I thought it odd that the administrative law judge pointed to those in support of his conclusion when he doesn't identify uh, those as elements of the economic realities test. Right. I think he was trying to point out that it, the employer's representations to the public are a factor in determining um, if they're if they're a cited employer because it goes to whether workers consider them to be their employer. Um, but you're right, the the control factors are 
by far the more significant factors to consider in the economic realities test. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, he could have focused on that and he'd still, the judge, uh, sorry, she would have still had plenty of uh, evidence in support of her conclusion. Uh, as you say, the employees interviewed believed that they were, uh, they were employed by Free Car America and there was evidence that Free Car America had the authority to hire and fire employees. Uh, I, I know you were about to get to the question of uh, the employment agreements, et cetera. Uh, exactly. So when you look at who has the responsibility to control workers, who has the power over workers, and who has specifically the power to fire and hire workers, there were several facts that the ALJ pointed to. So, for example, the the product assembly instructions marked Freight Car America, uh, the incident reports, employee statements, um, and also agree- contract uh, agreements with the facility and a staffing agency, for example, uh, they they list Freight Car uh, America, uh, indicating that they have the power to hire workers. Um, their employee handbook had uh, Freight Car America's name, uh, and then several types of documents like safety data sheets, the employee handbook, and so these are all important uh, because they go to uh, not only. Uh, because they go to who has control over hiring and firing employees and who has control over the employees. Yeah, and again, the disciplinary reports is probably one of the more telling Mm -hmm. ones. The other one is not just the fact that the handbook itself is titled Freight Car America, but much more importantly, internally in that handbook, uh, it's stating what Freight Car America's expectations are for conduct, for uh, performance, etc., for employees, and it's describing them as being Freight Car America's expectations. So I think you're right. Those are probably the most telling, along with Freight Car America's reserved power to hire and fire and change the conditions of work. I think that's right. Well, so so the administrative law judge, on the basis of all of that evidence, concluded that we're looking at uh, uh, an instance where the parent company was indeed the employer even if the parent company was protesting that it wasn't uh, and wanted to be cited under its establishment incorporated entity. That, I think, given the evidence that was fairly abundant in that case, is an unsurprising decision. Uh, Fast forward, however, then the judge starts to evaluate the merits of the case and concludes that OSHA had failed to establish that, in fact, Freight Car America was indeed liable because uh, what had happened was an employee had removed those side pins from the last standing wall in order to readjust the alignment of that wall after the crane had let go of the wall, thereby leaving the wall with no support. And that that was just something that the employer knew nothing about and was unaware that he had done it and couldn't for uh, their ability explain why he would have since it was against his training. And so the administrative law judge ruled that even if Freight Car America is the employer, they didn't do anything to create a struck by hazard or have any opportunity to have prevented it. And so they nevertheless were not liable under that citation. Uh, An interesting sort of epilogue to the case. Mm -hmm. But on the question that we're here for today, the question of parent and subsidiary uh, identity such that the parent would be liable. It's interesting that within a matter of weeks of that same decision in Muscle Shoals, coming out of a facility in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, uh, 
there was another case that went all the way up to the Alabama Supreme Court involving a company named Ultratech. Ultratech is a company that uh, is engaged in a number of businesses. The parent company in Canada uh, is engaged in, in contracting for the use of fog machines and other special effects in the entertainment industry. Its facility, in, uh, only about less than two hours upriver of the Tennessee River, uh, in uh, a town called, I think, Owens Mill Crossing, uh, Alabama, was uh, engaged in the making of pyrotechnics. These are not the fireworks that you'd see at fireworks shows, but again, for the entertainment industry. So both, the Alabama subsidiary Ultratech uh, was, was, as well as Ultratech... HSV. Uh, the, the Alabama company is called Ultratech HSV, as well as the parent company in Canada, Ultratech Special Effects, were both engaged in selling to the same clients services related to the entertainment industry, uh, things like, of a common type, fog machines, uh, pyrotechnics, and other special effects, lighting effects. And so, so the facility in Alabama, uh, which was engaged in the manufacturing of those pyrotechnics, uh, was unfortunate to experience an, an explosion. And this is, I won't say common in the pyrotechnics industry, it's an industry that uh, there's there's a considerable amount of care that goes into the handling uh, and manufacturing and storage of these types of materials. But it is uh, well known that it's an industry that's, after all, several millennia old. It's well known that there are, from time to time, accidents that happen. And sometimes when an accident happens, given the nature of the materials, it can be very tragic. So there's an explosion and two people died and their estates brought suit. Uh, they brought suit against the parent company, uh, Ultratech Special Effects Incorporated, uh, the Canadian company. Uh, Ultratech Special Effects immediately challenged the suit and said that this case properly belongs under the workers' comp bar. Now, the workers' comp bar is a term we use to refer to the exclusivity provision in every state, in every state's workers' comp scheme. It essentially says that the employee which uh, this, this is established by this was established by Congress in the 1930s and it essentially states that there's a grand compromise instead of having to bring all of your proof problems and go through potentially years of tort uh, litigation in the regular article 3 courts a special system will be created the workers comp system and that will facilitate and expedite the process on the other hand damages are established they're established and set limited so that's the grand compromise of this uh, scheme that goes back to the 1930s that was set by Congress and implemented at the state level in every state. And it's, uh, it's commonly referred to as the workers' comp bar. Uh, uh, technically in Alabama, it's referred to as the exclusivity provision of the Alabama Workers' Comp Act, Workers' Compensation Act. And so, so Ultratech stated to the court that this was uh, applicable here because there's this, an essential identity between the parent company and the subsidiary comp company. And al although the brief for summary judgment uh, by Ultratech, uh, certainly I think that there, there's a number of facts that could have been argued more clearly. And I think that the economic realities test needed to form the framework of Ultratech's arguments. To my mind, having argued this 
uh, throughout the country and, and successfully. I think that there's no question that the front jab and the follow-up punch needed to be about the economic realities test instead of about the vagaries of construction, statutory construction about the exclusivity provision in the workers' comp statute in Alabama itself. But unfortunately, uh, Ultratech lost a summary judgment and it appealed and appealed all the way to the Alabama Supreme Court. This decision is even more uh, compelling to me. The Alabama Supreme Court went through this long exercise, first in analyzing the history of the corporate entity itself, Ultratech Special Effects Incorporated, its mergers, its purchases, uh, behind it, its ownership, and then it went into its relationship to this Alabama corporation, Ultratech HSV, and it compared it to the only other Alabama Supreme Court decision that it could locate, that it found was somewhat uh, informative. And in that prior case, which dates back to, oh, I believe uh, something like 1997, uh, it essentially found that in that case, two subsidiaries of a common parent, one subsidiary could not avail itself of the workers' comp bar if sued by an injured employee. And so uh, there was no identity between the two corporations. From that, the Alabama Supreme Court concluded that that must also be true for a parent and subsidiary. And they cited to one other case where uh, there was a complete merger of a subsidiary into the parent and said, well, in this particular case with Ultratech, there's no complete merger between the subsidiary and the parent. They are two distinct corporate entities. They filed separately for taxes and they're two separate, com uh, completely separate entities. Uh, and so, so that case doesn't apply. In short, they took the one case where there was a parent and subs wholly owned subsidiary, and they dismissed it because that was a complete merger, and Ultratech had c maintained two formally distinct corporations, and instead relied on a case where there were two sister subsidiaries. If that doesn't seem bizarre enough to anyone listening, the Alabama Supreme Court noted in its decision that the parent company, Ultratech, had argued back during the time of the explosion when OSHA came and conducted an inspection and issued a citation. The parent company said to OSHA, the OSHA inspector, you shouldn't cite the parent, you should cite the Alabama subsidiary. And so the Supreme Court the leading opinion, uh, they noted that fact in support of their conclusion that these were not two employers, a parent and subsidiary, that should share a common identity. They were distinct employers that should be distinctive identity, and thus they should be okay to sue the parent. Well, it's difficult to express how poor I found this opinion without going blow by blow into all the deficiencies of the opinion, but I, I've pointed out the two that I think are the most compelling. And the only thing I can tell you is I think it's an incorrect decision. With uh, Frankly, I don't have a doubt in my mind that the court, the Alabama Supreme Court is wrong in this decision. And it's a, it's a travesty of justice because the Alabama Supreme Court is the court of last resort uh, in that state. And so that's sort of the final word. And although it's heartbreaking for Ultratech, the parent company, it's also very troubling for employers generally who have a subsidiary located in Alabama. 
whether or not that parent is an Alabama corporation also or not is of really little moment. The point being that the parent should not be liable under tort law, the parent and the subsidiary in cases like the Ultratech case, and including the Ultratech case, should be subjected to liability in the workers' comp system. In this particular case, had the Supreme Court and its lower court, when denying summary judgment, had they applied the economic realities test, there would have been no question to me that the employer, both parent and subsidiary, were of common identity and should have enjoyed the protections of the workers' comp bar that's afforded to both sides, the employee and the employer. For one thing, the owners of the parent company were the same as the owners of the subsidiary. In fact, it was just one guy who was the director of the parent who was also the director of the subsidiary. Uh, the, the policies and the procedures, the payroll, were all handled by the parent. The direct day-to-day -day supervision, all handled by this same one guy. In fact, he moved down from Canada and he rented an apartment in Alabama uh, about, about a mile or two from the facility, and he worked there day in and day out. He, he made hiring and firing decisions of the staff there. He overruled local supervisors when a local supervisor would turn down an application for employment. He'd overrule them and hire them. He would engage in discipline. The records were, I think, pretty clear that he'd engaged in discipline. He, he oversaw the, the features of production, how the workers were doing their work. Now, Again, one of the landmark decisions in the U.S. Court of Appeals in the Tenth Circuit is, is, is my case. And all of these features were the most uh, dispositive. They're the most telling. They're the best method by which an outsider who isn't there can take a peek into the world of the facility at Ultratech HSV and say for themselves in an objective manner, whether or not the parent company is in fact, under the economic realities test, in sufficient control of the workforce there, such that it should participate in the workers' comp system, like its subsidiary would. And frankly, there were no facts that went to the contrary under the economic realities control test that came up uh, either at the su summary judgment stage, which I, I read this summary judgment brief, and I read the uh, Supreme Court decision, and they didn't cite any facts that would have uh, militated against application of the economic realities control test in favor of Ultratech. But in fact, that's the essential problem, is that the Alabama Supreme Court didn't apply that test. It, it was really applying only a statutory construction uh, analysis, and even then it got that analysis wrong. The dissenting opinion seems to be far more uh, clear and lucid and reasonable. And it basically said, if you're going to do a statutory construction kind of um, approach to this, uh, the pl plain reading of the uh, exclusivity provision would have included not just the direct employer of the workers, but also any group of employers who, who's uh, collectively engaged in the employment relationship, which I think very clearly includes a parent with the kind of facts we see here where you know, the, the one director and owner was also down there directly supervising everyone. So, so that's Ultratech. Where does that leave us, given that uh, there is at least this one court, and the dissent noted that uh, Alabama is a minority here. If you look at 
uh, at least most of the other states that that Ultratech's facts would have been sufficient to put it under the workers' comp bar and not outside of it. Uh, so that that fact, I think, is troubling enough, and that makes Alabama a very troublesome state uh, for any employer who has facilities in multiple states, including Alabama. But it, frankly, it also makes it troublesome for, for employers now in any state to first engage in an analysis of your state's law, uh, workers' comp bar and the case law under it as it applies to the identity of the employer with respect to parents and subsidiaries uh, before you engage in any other activity. I think you've got to understand this question in light of the Ultratech decision. Uh, so let's talk generally about what else employers should do. I think that, that you have to understand that when you have a parent-subsidiary relationship, you have to make sure that the management team down there at the establishment that has a different subsidiary understands what uh, the corporate structure is. Employees understand exactly who they're employed by. And on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, things have to go along on a daily basis in a manner that's consistent with that expression uh, that you've, you've uttered to your, your staff. Uh, as to which entity is the proper entity at that site. And, and if, if the corporation has developed a strategy that essentially goes down the road of Freight Car America where they say, hey, we want to be separate. We want all liability to devolve down to the, to the local incorporated entity. Then it needs to engage in conduct on a daily basis that's consistent with that. And I don't really think that the signs and the business cards are as telling. I think that the local entity is entitled to do business as a trade name. But I do think what's more telling is the policies, the discipline, the right to hire and fire, the right to discipline uh, has, to be, has to be localized uh, to that local entity. And uh, that the, the parent company has to respect that, that corporate distinction. Um, I also think it's safe to say that when the public representation, the elements, Javanet, that you were talking about, like signage, like uh, uh, business cards, what the employees believed, that it is helpful if, if indeed you can bring those in line with that ultimate corporate strategy. Uh, I'd also say that you're going to deal with more than just OSHA when you deal with inspections, enforcement actions. And I think that they'll, they'll include uh, the U.S. agencies like the Environmental Protection Agency, but also local uh, entities like fire inspections, fire code inspections, building code inspections. And in those cases, it's important that the local uh, officials at your establishment uh, know what entity that they state that they're representing. When, in the case of Freight Car America, they were dealing with the phone calls with OSHA, the intake calls, the OSHA of, uh, intake officer asked, all right, what's the name of the company at that establishment? And the manager at Freight Car America said, this is Freight Car America Incorporated. So they, they announced to OSHA that they're Freight Car America Incorporated and then subsequently went to argue that, no, 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 we're Freight Car Alabama. And uh, so I don't think that, that that's the kind of inconsistency that's going to help out. Uh, finally, I would say this. I don't think that it was so inconsistent. I disagree with the Alabama Supreme Court on one more point. I don't think it was so inconsistent for for. Ultratech to argue to the to OSHA that you should cite the subsidiary, not us, the parent company, but then say that both companies are of an identity for the purposes of the workers' comp bar. OSHA is responsible to cite the proper entity at that establishment, and the inspections take place on an establishment basis. And the question that the OSHA Compliance Safety and Health Officer 
needs to be informed of is what incorporated entity is the entity at that establishment hiring those employees. Now, in that case, there may have been a conflation between the two such that OSHA, the ALJ, could reasonably get to Free Car America. Nevertheless, in Ultratech's case, it's not unreasonable to say that the proper cited entity should be Ultratech HSV, but for the purpose of the workers' comp bar, both of us should belong under the workers' comp bar. Uh, that's the last thought that I have that might uh, provide some practical takeaway for y'all. Uh, Javane, any other thoughts on this? I think that I think that it's getting a, a cohesive strategy from I, the beginning is probably the most important thing. No, absolutely. I think keeping in mind what um, what the review commission considers when they're determining who has control over employees and who is the employer over affected employees. It's important to keep those factors in mind when you're evaluating whether or not your parent company is in fact, uh, could be subject to a potential OSHA enforcement or any other type of liability. And so knowing that it's important to keep track of, you know, what, how you represent the company to the public and then also who is making decisions uh, regarding employee discipline, employee uh, hiring and firing, um, and, you know, day-to-day man -day management of the facilities. And so keeping all that framework in mind, that can help develop your strategies. And it can even help, you know, whose name you put on contracts. Yeah, I think in both cases, the development of an argument before both of these uh, tribunals was uh, probably something that clearly, in retrospect, we, we see could, could have been uh, handled differently. In fact, in the uh, Free Car America case, I don't think that the argument was worth making at all given the evidence. Right. Okay, so that's it for the OSHA 3030 for this month. Javane, thank you for joining us. Another uh, great topic selection, I credit to you, and uh, a great uh, a great uh, sort of overall lesson for employers within the OSHA 3030 community. We'll be back next month. Until then, you can catch more updates on Twitter at Rathmanish, uh, on our LinkedIn pages, as well as I mentioned before, this OSHA 3030 and for the past several years, uh, episodes of OSHA 3030s are on as a podcast, remember, uh, the next one is on December 18th, uh, and remember, the next time you get an invitation to please forward that invitation to three other people, even if you've already forwarded it on to three other people, please forward it on to three more every time you get an invitation, because new members of the OSHA 3030 community are the lifeblood of the program. Speaking of the lifeblood of the program, we've given rise to three other programs, the TOSCA 3030, REACH 3030, and FIFRA 3030. And the dates for those for the Tosca and Reach 3030 are December 11th uh, at 1.30 and 1.35, respectively. Please tune into those. And uh, we hope to see you on our next date, December 18th. Until then, on behalf of Keller and Heckman, Javane Nukumarum, and myself, thank you very much for tuning in. And until next month, stay safe. <laughs>